So today is what? Pentecost Sunday. It's what we celebrate as Pentecost Sunday. Some parts of the world call it Whit Sunday or White Sunday. Fifty days after Easter, seven weeks after Passover. And as we saw in that video when the service began, it was at Pentecost that the church of Jesus was born. So I'm here to say to you, happy birthday. Yeah, turn to your neighbor and say, tell him happy birthday. Go ahead and do it right now. The church was formed on that day when the Holy Spirit was poured out. There came a sound, you know it from Acts chapter 2, as of a rushing mighty wind. What appeared to be like cloven tongues of fire sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. Then what happened? Peter got up and preached, and the Lord added to the church that day about 3,000 people who were baptized. And so I want to acknowledge that today, that that's what we are celebrating. But I also, when I just sort of step back and take a, another look at it, as I did this week, I want to acknowledge God's absolutely incredible incredible, incredible master plan. When you look at the, the grand scheme of all of it, His plan in giving us Jesus to die for our sins, to pay for the, the, pay the ransom for our sin-sick souls, for redeeming us back to God. Is anybody thankful for it today? But then once the work of Jesus was completed on this earth and He ascended back into heaven, we were not left without a comforter. Bless the name of the Lord. God sent His Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, not to just be on the earth, but the part that is so utterly amazing to me, but He sent Him, him to live within us. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide us, to comfort us, to strengthen us, and to renew us day by day. And not only that, but to cause us to see things that we would otherwise not see and cause us to know things that we would otherwise not know. And I just, when I look at the whole picture of it all, the coming of Christ to earth and dying for our sins and ascending back into heaven, and yet the Holy Spirit came, that, my friends, can only be given by a God of love who loves us, so determined to shed His love abroad in our hearts through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It was an amazing plan, and it reminds us that we serve an amazing God, and that is why we celebrate Pentecost today. Can I get an amen from the church? So on this day, I want to just remind you to take a moment and thank God for the precious gift of His Holy Spirit. In whatever way that, that you can, this afternoon, sometime today, just thank the Lord for his, the precious gift of His Holy Spirit. And, and, and so, Dan, how do I do that? Well, be thankful that He's always with you because He dwells within. That means He's with you when you're awake. He's with you when you're asleep. He's with you when you travel, when you go to another country. He's with you when you're not thinking of Him. He's still with you because He's always there, and He's more than enough for you and for me today. Since this is the birthday of the church, it's when the church was founded on the day of Pentecost, let me talk about the church for just a few minutes. I have lots of personal story in the church, uh, all the way back to when ice cream cones were a dime. Um, I was in the church then. We used to sing a song that said, "'Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle." Anybody ever sing that song? Three of you. Okay, great. "'Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb." And I have to tell you, some of the most 
interesting things have happened in church in my lifetime. In fact, because I was raised in a Pentecostal church, you didn't dare miss church. You had no idea what was going to happen when you got there. And, so, and also, some of the funniest things can happen in church. How many of you have ever gotten the church giggles before? You got them yesterday, Miss Janice, I know. She told me she had the church. What's the church giggles? That's when you're not supposed to be laughing. It's supposed to be serious, but something, something so funny happens, you just can't hardly help yourself. Have you ever tried to suppress it when you're, when you're trying to, you're not supposed to laugh, but, you're, but you really need to laugh hard? Like when in one of my life, when one of the dear sisters was being baptized, and for whatever reason, she decided to go in the baptismal tank with her wig on. She went down, the wig went that way, and she went this way. You know, I can tell you what the church was like in the 1960s. Yes, I was there. I can tell you what it was like in the 70s. Had a little different complexion. I'll tell you what it was like in the 80s and every decade since. And many of you can do the same. So as I talk about this, some of you are going to relate to this. Some of you go, wow, it was really like that? Yes, it was. Back in the 60s, we just had a piano and an organ. The piano was typically over on this side, and the organ was over on this side. Who remembers the day? Okay, uh, and um, we didn't have drums because drums were of the devil, right? We all knew that. And so beside the piano was always, there was up on the wall, was a little Sunday school board that told you how many people were in Sunday school last week and, and this week, and maybe you grew up in a more nominal church and they had the, hymn, the page number for the hymns that were going to be sung. It was on the little board up on the side. Who remembers the little board? Come on, let me see who am I talking to today. Okay, so the piano was over there, typically, and the organ was over here, and beside the piano was that board, but also the American flag was right over there, right? And then on this side was the, the Christian flag was, was over there. Well, that format was not only in the 1960s, but it carried on to the 70s. In fact, I remember Becky and, and, and me being called to candidate for a, a music position at a church a very distinguished and sophisticated church in the mid-70s. And back in those days, we were very young. We really were young once, and Becky played the piano, and I played the organ. And so we went to this church, and um, they were sort of, uh, it was a really tall platform, kind of a formal church. We had no idea why they were calling us, but we went anyway, and they were very gracious. And the pastor's wife was very sophisticated, and so she, she came to us to say, now, now, Becky, you'll play the piano for the morning service, and, and Dan, you'll play the organ. Okay, we got that part. We came to the evening, and they had a guest uh, concert artist there. It was a man by the name of Dave Boyer, a very fine uh, singer. He had come from the life of singing in clubs in New Jersey and New York, of the, uh, of the ilk of Frank Sinatra, and he was that kind of a singer. But the Lord had saved him, but he still brought that styling to his concerts. So the evening uh, came. It was a, a, an auditorium about this size. It was absolutely packed full of people. And uh, they said, now, we'll have some congregational singing at the beginning. Becky, you'll be at the piano, and Dan, you'll be at the organ. So, and then she said, and Mr. Boyer is going to sing the first half of his concert. And then at the, at the end of the first half, we're going to take an offering, and you all are going to play uh, what we call an offertory. That's music that's being played while the offering is being taken. So this, this pastor's wife was very, um, very detailed and saying, now, Becky, after the congregational singing, there's a chair that's going to be right over there beside the piano. And after you've finished playing, you sit in that chair until it's time for to play the offertory. And we want to go, we were raised in church, we get this, we know how this goes. And so she's got a chair, Dan, there's a chair for you over there. So here's how it goes. 
They, we have the congregation singing. Becky sits down. I sit down. And then all of the lights go off because Mr. Boyer liked that atmosphere. There's not one light on in the city of Kansas City that night except the spotlight that was on him. So Becky has gotten comfortable in her chair. Very, very comfortable. And in the course of that 30 minutes or so, with every other light out, Becky's sitting here and she's just sort of moved into her own world. She reaches down in her purse and she pulls out, is it called an emery board? Is that what you do your nails with? There's not a light on, nobody can see her, right? So she's, you know, she's fixing things and doing stuff with her hair, doing her nails. But what they forgot to tell us was that the last song in his first set of music was a patriotic med medley. One light on in the entire building, it's a spotlight on him. And so, and he had told the spotlight guy, and here's Becky, and here's the American flag right here right here, five inches from her chair. And he tells the spotlight guy, when I get to the last chorus of America, America, he had told the spotlight guy, take the light off of me and put it on the American flag. Did we have shoulder pads back then? I don't remember. <laughs> might have had shoulder pads. It might have been before shoulder pads. I don't remember. So here's exactly how it played out. The moment came. I'm sitting over there in my chair by the organ. The spotlight moves from, uh, from him to her. There's not another light in the county except that one light. But Becky's not paying attention because she's kind of gone in her own world. So she's doing this, and it literally played out like this. And she can get no further out of the chair because that light will not shrink small enough. And finally, it ends like this. And the minute that service was over with, she came running to me and she was, you get me out of this town as fast as you possibly can. I never want to see these people again as long as I live. I'm asking you all to pray for me this afternoon that I'll be well enough to attend the prayer service tonight. <laughs> Funny things happen in church. I bet you all have a story of some kind. But regardless, it's a glorious church without spot a wrinkle, and it's washed in the blood of the Lamb. So where does that song come from? Well, it comes right from Paul's words to the Ephesians, 
right in the midst of him giving us instructions about spirit-guided relationships. He's primarily dealing with husband and wife relationships, and yes, he seems to drop this idea in the midst of that and, and intertwining it all together. In fact, I want to bring this to your attention. It's not really my text, but I want to bring it to your attention because I'm not sure how well Today, in 2017, I'm not sure how well we really understand there's a correlation between the Holy Spirit and the church of Jesus. Somehow we've managed to separate those things, and they are not separated. I have watched throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and on into today a continuing devaluation of the church. Yes, even by people who love to talk about the Holy Spirit and His importance in their lives. It's as if somehow they have separated them, and the church has gone this way, the Holy Spirit has gone this way. They have separated them in their mind. And you can hear them say, I love Jesus, I'm glad I'm saved, I love the Holy Spirit, I love His comfort and guidance, I love the goose pimples I get when I sense the anointing, I, the music's just right, I love all that. But the church, oh, isn't it just full of hypocrites? And, and, and isn't it just the, I love this one, it always comes with a, a cynical tone, isn't it just the institutionalized church that always comes with an attitude with it, every time I hear it? And here's what's happened, church. Our technological age of self-importance has absolutely eaten away at our American westernized culture when it comes to the value of the church, the church that was built by the Lord Jesus and upheld by his apostles. So just to help kind of lay the, the, the foundation for this, for us to understand how important the church is, I want us to see uh, the words of Paul. Now, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is where I'm going to go. I'm going to read just a few verses because I have to let you see, see the context of it. Yes, he's talking about a husband-wife relationship. Yes, he's giving instructions. And yes, this is the passage, ladies, you never want a preacher to talk about because it's got that word submit, okay? This is not a message on submission. It is necessarily. It is, it is a, 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 a message on understanding the value of the church. I want you to note with me the correlation between the Holy Spirit and the church. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me pause there just a second as I'm talking about that verse. Here's what we understand, that the verb that is used there is in the present continual sense. What it's really saying is be being filled ongoingly. How many of you know being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time thing? How many of you are glad that He's filling you again today with His Holy Spirit? How many want the, the Holy Spirit to fill you once again? We all do. It is be being filled. And that's what Paul is saying here. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why would you do that? Out of reverence for Christ. And then he introduces the wives and husbands uh, motif here. He says, for wives... This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the 
the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit everything to your husbands and everything. For husbands, this means that you must love your wives just as Christ loved who? And here's, here it is. And he gave up his life for her. Yes, it's always put in the, in, in the feminine. Her, We are the bride of Christ. We are she. He gave up his life for her. And you've allowed the church to not have value anymore? It's become something that's an option? He gave up his life for her. Washed by the cleansing of God's word. And he did this to present. Here's where that hymn comes in that we used to sing years ago. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. How many of you want to be a part of the glorious, blameless, faultless church of Jesus Christ? And then he goes on to give further instructions to the husbands who need it so desperately. My actual text, though, comes from Psalm 142. I want you to go there in your Bibles or on your devices or whatever you have. Because this is what I want to point you to today. I don't know what cave it came from, but we do know that it wasn't written from a desk, this psalm. We do know it didn't come from a college thesis paper. Rather, it was a prayer that we come to understand was said in a cave. We know that the writer is David and that he is writing at a very, very difficult time in his life. Uh, a deeper study would probably point to the fact that it was probably one of two caves, either Adullam or Engedi, probably. Regardless, David was running for his life, and he had a whole group of men around him. And in fact, Scripture says that number could have been up to as many as 400, maybe 400 plus men. But here's what's absolutely incredible, if you're going to Psalm 142, to note that with 400 men around him, and at a time of deep trouble, Here's what he wrote. He's in a cave, 400 men around him, deeply distressed, and here's what he says. I look for someone to come and help me. Some of your versions may say, I look to the right or I look to the left. I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit about what happens to me. I'm sitting in a crowded place, and yet no one is even giving me a passing thought. No one knows what's going on within me. No one knows what's happening within my life. I'm surrounded by plenty of people, but feeling absolutely no connection with them at this critical point of my life. Now, here's what you and I know. Listen to me, please. Listen. Not only can this happen thousands of years ago, to a man in a cave, man who is known as the man after God's own heart. But guess what? It can happen today sitting right here in Bethesda. It can happen when you're in a choir, when you look to the person on your left, the person on your right, and you think to yourself, they have no idea what's going on inside my heart. They have no idea what's going on in my mind and my heart, even though we're singing the same song today. 
But in the midst of the people, I have no sense of connection. Can I just remind you today, church, I don't know that I can say this strong enough. I don't think I can give it the impact it ought to have. But the body of Christ is so incredibly valuable. You didn't hear me. The body of Christ is unbelievably valuable. Despite those who try to disparage it, and there are plenty who do, increasingly so as we go through time. But I want to tell you this, and I'm speaking for myself today, I cannot be a strong Christian without the body of Christ. Can I be a Christian? Yes. I'm a Christian because I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've accepted the work of the cross. And that makes me a Christian. I cannot be a strong Christian. I cannot be a thriving Christian without the body of Christ. And here's what I want you to hear. That goes for introverts as well as extroverts. Doesn't matter. Don't excuse it because you're an introvert. That goes for people who, who are, who are uh, uh, sociable by nature and people who struggle to be sociable by nature. You cannot be a strong, thriving, growing Christian without being part of the body of Christ. You know, when Gloria Gaither was here a couple of weeks ago, when I think about this word introvert and extrovert, she said to us, she said, you know, the truth is I'm an introvert living in, in, I'm an, introvert living in an extroverted world. She said the difference between myself and her husband, Bill Gaither, she said, I walk in a room and it's full of people I, and I inwardly I go, oh, no. I got to meet all these people, and what if I get trapped in a conversation that I'm just really not interested in, and they're going to ask something of me, and, and she goes, that's, that's what I'm thinking when I walk in a room full of people. Bill walks in and goes, new friends, new friends, and he enjoys it, and I know that we all have our bent one way or another, but that doesn't matter when it comes to the body of Christ. You cannot be a growing Christian without the people of God around you because we need each other and we are in this thing together. Does the church have problems? Yes. How many of you know the church has problems? But we are still the people of God. We are still the living church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was an article in the New York Times that I think will surprise you, and it was the New York Times, keep that in mind. It was called this, The Benefits of Going to Church. It said this, it was an op-ed piece. It said, one of the most striking scientific discoveries about religion and the church in recent years is that going to church each week is good for you. Thank you, New York Times. Some of us already knew that, right? goes on to say, this is a, some scientific proof that they have. It says this, if you attend church regularly, it will boost your immune system. It will decrease your blood pressure which means you can't eat chips and salsa without guilt. And it may add as much as two to three years to your life, so you'd better get to church. Why? Not because the New York Times tells us to do it, but because the Word of God tells us to do it. You probably don't need me to remind you of what Hebrews says in chapter 10. It says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. We, 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 we hear the part, uh, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. We know that. That's probably been tucked away in our minds since we were in Sunday school. But we somehow skipped over the part, as is the habit of some. Do you know that forsaking the assembling of ourselves together can become a habit? I love that awkward silence when I say something and you just sit there. 
It can become a habit. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It does seem as though the New York Times has figured out what God's been saying to us for centuries, and that is this, you and I need each other. You may not like that, but you and I need each other. And the other thing it says is this, you are important to the church whether you feel like it or not. You are important to the church. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm important to you. Go ahead right now. Whether you feel like it or not. Because listen to what Romans 12 says. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. You are important to the, and I know I'm talking to people today who feel worthless, with no value, not sure where your place is, I can't find my place. I know, but I'm talking to you also, dear one. You are important to the body of Christ, whatever gifting God has given you, whether it's ushering, greeting, singing, teaching, helping with baptisms, visiting the sick and the shut-ins, and thank God we have people who do all these things, and helping with Bethesda Cares, and reaching to the community involved in missions, going on lowly trips or with George Rodella or whomever else, working in the tech booth. There's people up there working right now, preparing communion, prayer ministry, whatever it is, everyone has a place and all are important to the work of Christ through the church. In fact, I'm going to take it a little further. This is where my popularity rating goes way down. I'm going to take it so far as to say this, because this is what I truly believe. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have a responsibility. I'm going to give you three. You have at least three responsibilities if you are a believer in Jesus. You have a responsibility to corporate worship. That means not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together in church. You have a responsibility to corporate worship. You have a responsibility to connect with other believers. That's, that, that means you don't just walk in late, leave early, look at the back of someone's head, speak to no one, have no contact with them today or any time during the week. No, you have a responsibility as a believer. Read the rest of Acts 2. Just look how they lived. Connecting with other believers. A responsibility for corporate worship, a responsibility for connecting with other believers, and a responsibility for finding a place of service in the church. Those are three things. That's the way the church is built and nowhere in Scripture can you show me where you are allowed to be a freeloader. And the popularity just plummeted. <laughs> it's not there. I, you know, it's not there. No place. Now you may say, find a place of serve. But Dan, I'm old and tired. You can't pray. You can't be part of the prayer ministry in some way. You can't band together with two or three other people and pray. If, 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 you know, if, if you're tired and old and like me, you, know, you can at least pray. Nowhere in Scripture can you show me where the sum of your Christian experience is that you show up once or twice a month to the service, connect with no one, and do nothing. You cannot find that in Scripture, dear friend. It is not there. It is not there. Thank you. Both of you, I thank you talk to you afterwards. And Bethesda, are you listening to me? Bethesda will never be as much as God has blessed us, as much as God has favored us, as 
Many things are taking place. What, some 60-some ministries based out of this fellowship. The activity is, you know, almost 24-7. It's, it's crazy all the things that go on. With all of that, hear me. And this burns in my heart. Bethesda will never be all that God has called us to be to this day and to this generation until everyone in our fellowship finds your appropriate place in the house of God to worship, to connect with other believers, and to serve. Worship, connect, serve. Say it with me. Worship. Say it again. And dear friend, I'm not really trying to come down hard on you. I'm trying to tell you the truth. You are without excuse. You are without excuse. I know you're busy. I'll compare schedules with the best of you. I know we're busy. I know you've got this responsibility. But there is some way that you can do that as a believer. You know, and it may sound humble of you to say that, well, Pastor, I really don't have any gifts. I, you know, I, I don't have any abilities. I, I, I just really can't, I can't do anything. I've, I've really got nothing to offer. There's a word for that kind of thinking. In Texas, we call that hogwash. You were nervous, weren't you, for just about two minutes. I know I hear that all the time. I just don't know. I don't know, what, I don't know what I would do. Well, if you read the biography of one of the great missionary pioneers, Hudson Taylor, who brought the gospel for the first time into China, you'll discover this, that while he was speaking at one time in Scotland, a one-legged schoolteacher came to Hudson Taylor to offer himself to China and the work there. Uh, Hudson Taylor was working in I was preaching in Scotland and, and uh, commissioning people, inviting people to go on the mission field with him. And the only person who came was this one-legged school teacher. And Hudson said to him, said, with, only, with only one leg? Why, why, do you th why, why do you think of going as a missionary, the biography reads? Well, the, the guy with the one leg, his name was George Scott. This was George Scott's response. He says, sir, I don't see those going with two legs, so I think one leg is better than none. And then the biography goes on to say this, George Scott, the one-legged evangelist who helped Hudson Taylor, he would take booklets or gospel tracts that had been translated into Chinese, and he would hit the streets, and he would knock on the doors. And before they could slam the door shut on him, he would stick that wooden leg in the door. So they couldn't slam the door just long enough to be sure they had that gospel track. All that to say, if God can use a one wooden-legged man to do his work for the church, he can use you. You are without excuse. There's another verse I want to show you in the Proverbs that tells you how important you are to the church and why God has put us all together. And I want everyone to hold real still. No more moving around. There's been plenty of that this morning. Sit down right where you are, please. Proverbs 18.1. I want you to look at this. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. Is that up on the screen? Read it with me. He who... Okay, as a pastor, there's something I observe that takes place way 
too often. One of the most common tools of the enemy is to get you to isolate. Isolate yourself from the body of Christ. I mean, it's just the reality of life. I see it every week. Satan did it from the very beginning with Eve. He isolated her from her own husband so that it was just the serpent and Eve talking. And guess what? No one else was around. And I, it's not hard to understand why this isolation thing happens. I know why it happens. You've done something that you're not proud of. Something has happened in your family that has embarrassed you. Some unfortunate circumstances have made life difficult, and you are, you are afraid that in the church it will be perceived poorly, and folks will then know that your life is not perfect. Someone has possibly, another reason, someone, someone has hurt you, and it is just this natural instinct to cocoon, It's a word I like to use, someone, because someone's hurt you, or here's one that takes it to another level. Someone has hurt your children, and your inclination is to withdraw. Can I just tell you, Becky and I have had all of those things happen to us many times over. All of it has happened many, many times. So we know something about that need and that instinct to want to separate ourselves and to want to isolate. You just kind of want to put some space and some distance. It is a natural instinct. But when you sit there by yourself, you become your own little world. And then here it goes to the next step. You then become your own counselor, and that's not a good thing. But when you get connected with the body of Christ and you find someone to connect with who is on fire for Jesus, let me tell you something. Let me just tell you something. (laughs) It is so healthy for you to be around somebody who is on fire for Jesus. I don't care if you think they're crazy. I don't care if you don't like what they do. If you don't like the way they dance in church, I don't care. I'm talking about someone who isn't just externally doing all the stuff, but is genuinely on fire for Jesus. They radiate his presence in everything they do. And that, when you're around them, let me just tell you, that's just going to leak out all over you. That's why you need to find someone to connect with who is on fire for Jesus and drink of their spirit, Des used to say for so long. Drink of their spirit and see what happens when you get yourself in a situation and around people who are on fire for Jesus and quit hanging around with those people who have got the mully grubs about everything. They're down on the church. They're down on everything that happens. They can tell you what everybody's done wrong. They can do all of that. Leave them alone. Bless them in the name of Jesus and go find somebody who loves Jesus and hang around them. When you drink of the spirit of someone who's on fire, so to speak, it will bring you to a healthier place spiritually, even, hear me, hear me, hear me, even if you don't desire that right now. And the reason you don't desire that now is because according to the verse we just read, put that Proverbs 18 verse back up. Let's look at the last half of it. It's because you are seeking your own desire. And you are proving that by quarreling against all sound wisdom. You want me to find something else to preach this morning? Just be aware that Satan is the one who's trying to isolate you. You may have all the good reasons 
that you've got. And I can come up with plenty more. Trust me, I've been there. But it is Satan who's trying to isolate you from the body of Christ. To keep you in a room full of people, like David said, and think that no one cares or no one is even giving you a passing thought. And we have all had those thoughts. Every one of us in this room, no one is tending to my needs. We've all felt that. But Proverbs reminds us that that kind of thinking and then taking the action to separate ourselves from the body is a form of selfishness. Even if it feels good to you for the moment and you've convinced yourself that you're doing the right thing. Satan wants to separate you and isolate you from the body of Christ. Christ wants to connect you to the body of Christ. And because we are people who are given free will to make the choice, you can choose, and I'm trying to put it plain and simple in front of you, which would you choose, to be separated because that's what Satan wants of you or to be connected because that's what Christ is asking from you. And I understand, I understand that the body of Christ has issues and problems. Our own church has its issues, starting with the pastor. We're not perfect people here. We all face issues. Had someone say to me this week, I've seen some things and I want to say, yes, and there's plenty more. If I can show you a few more things. We've got this issue and that issue and this problem and that problem, all of that kind of stuff. Joseph McKinney said this, anyone can love the ideal church. The challenge is to love the real church. Anyone can love the perfect church, and good luck finding it. Let me know when you do. Anyone can love the ideal church, but the challenge is to love the real church. And I'm talking about the real church that has issues. I'm talking about the real church that has problems. I'm talking about the real church that is like Noah's Ark. The stench on the inside would be unbearable if it were not for the storm on the outside. So we might as well get happy in here because it's worse out there than it is in here. Let's get together and allow God to use us for the glory of the name of Jesus. Yes, there are problems, issues, but let me give you just a few reasons. I want to wrap this up in a minute. Let me give you a few reasons why God has designed us to be together. Because I feel, having laid all this out, I feel the responsibility to say, okay, now why? Why is this true? Why we need each other. Why God is building a church family. Number one is this, if you're taking notes. To be isolated is to be alienated from wisdom. To be isolated, when you isolate yourself, it is to be alienated from wisdom. Every day, probably several times a day, you and I are making decisions, large and small. Now, I'm a list guy. I like my lists. And just like you, almost everything on my list requires some kind of decision in one way or another. And our responsibility as believers is to not just make good decisions. We want to do that. We need to not just make good decisions. We need to make God decisions. And no one of us, I don't care how smart you are, and we got some really smart people in this room. We've got some fine thinkers in this room today. But no one of us knows everything we need to know to always make those God decisions. Because guess what? Our view gets clouded no matter how smart we are. Our perspective can get warped 
no matter how smart we are. The Bible says in Proverbs eleven fourteen, you've heard this, that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And so when you isolate yourself, you lose a stream of wisdom when you do that. And here's what happens when you live isolated. You counsel you. You counsel you. So if there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors, then how do you get wise and the wisdom you need from God in isolation? Now, I want you to just think of with me, who, who, is, who gave us that proverb? Where did we get that? Who is it that's saying that? It's Solomon. Next to Jesus, the wisest man who ever lived. And Solomon said, you get smarter when you surround yourself with wise people. And even Solomon said, I need, Solomon said, I need people around me to counsel me. And nothing is more dangerous than to make critical decisions apart from wise, godly counsel. Some of you are making decisions this very morning, this week, today, the next couple of days. I implore you, seek wise, godly counsel. And notice the last half of that verse in Proverbs 18.1, which says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. When you isolate, you then put yourself within the possibility of becoming that person that nobody can tell you anything. No one can say anything to you because you're quarreling against sound wisdom. Well, but you don't know me, Dan. You just don't understand me. And you start quarreling because of the isolation that you have chosen. And you start believing yourself over the multitude of counselors. I'm imploring you today, do not lose the voice of sound wisdom in your life. Do not position yourself by your isolation to lose the voice of sound wisdom in your life. And I want to just tell you, there are so many wise people within this own fellowship, so many qualified, seasoned Christians who've had to walk out their journey of faith, all the while keeping their feet on the ground and their heart toward the Lord. After living 23 years in one house, uh, uh, Becky and I, we raised our kids there. We determined we wanted to downsize a bit, and so it was just about this time last year that we moved into a slightly smaller one-story home with a much smaller yard. Hallelujah. Obviously, we don't move very often, and though we made the ultimate decision, I want you to know we didn't make it alone. No, we sought the wisdom of a small number of people in this church, a family member, and another advisor who knows more about that kind of thing than we do. And they offered great help and gave us wisdom in the process of doing all of that. But here's the deal, church. When you seek wisdom, you need to be willing to receive wisdom. Uh, do I need to say it again? When you seek wisdom, you need to be willing to receive wisdom. And when your wise, godly counselor tells you something you don't want to hear, and that has happened, it's happened to me from time to time, don't be so quick to say, I bind you, Satan. Make it your quest to not just find people who agree with you. Some people do that. Well, I'll call Pastor Dan. Well, uh, I didn't like that. Let me call Pastor Michael. Let's see what he said. No, I didn't like that either. And they keep going uh, across the whoever they can find because they're only looking for someone who will agree with them. Make it your quest to discover what the Lord is saying to you through godly counsel. And this is why isolation is so terribly damaging. It alienates us from wisdom. And some people say, well, you know, um, I'll just watch church online and stay in my little shell. It's cozy in there and I like it. Well, uh, 
then I have to ask you, who do you have in your life who has the authority to speak truth to you? Who do you have in your life who will speak truth and you will listen without getting offended or defensive? Do you have anybody like that in your life? I do. I need it. You need someone like that. And when you alienate yourself, then you just counsel you. You just believe you. You are awesome. You're the best. You always know what's right in every situation, and you are in trouble. Number two, I'm going to finish here in the next couple of hours, okay? To be isolated from the body of Christ is to lose strength in fighting your battles. To be isolated from the body of Christ is to lose strength in fighting your battles. Whether you've been saved 60 years or 60 minutes, you probably figured out by now that this Christian life is a battle. We all fight battles and we all want to be strong for them. You know what the scripture says, that one can put a thousand to flight and two can put... 10,000 to fly. What does that mean? That means that when you're part of my life, you make me 10 times better. You make me 10 times stronger. And in light of that, why wouldn't I want to be part of the church? Why wouldn't I want the support of prayer? Look how Solomon talks about it in Ecclesiastes 4. You've heard this. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone, they're in real trouble. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated. But two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. I'm going to bring this to a close. Pastor Brent, why don't you come? Gerard and Jovan. I'm part of the body of Christ. How about you? I may be the little toe, but I'm in this church, and it's a glorious church. I just want to show you one thing as I, as I bring this to a close, and that's this. Only the Lord could do this. Because I know the things that are going on in some of our minds today, but Dan, that person's so difficult for me. I have a challenge with this and that and the other thing, and so everything within me wants to just go the other direction. When I see him coming down the hall, I can't be a part of that. I would rather just be in my little own shell and do this. I just want to tell you that is the most dangerous thing you could possibly do. And I also want to show you the example of the Lord Jesus Christ because only the Lord could do this. Tax collectors were considered the worst. They would have been in the same category as traitors and even harlots in the day of Scripture. When Rome came to Jerusalem, they would get these money-hungry Jews who would collect taxes from their own people, and then those guys would add a service fee on top of that, and so they were considered traitors. You're doing this for Rome, you're doing this for yourself, and they were hated. And then, not only were there tax collectors, there was this other group of people who were, in a sense, the religious radicals, and they were called zealots. And the zealots were the ones who, who would, it was their thing to go after the tax collectors. Even sometimes to go so far as the zealots would even kill the tax collectors. They hated tax collectors. And so with that in mind, you got the tax collectors, you got the zealots. I want to read you what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus called the 12 disciples together. He gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. Here's the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon also called Peter, then Andrew, Peter's brother, James, son of Zebedee, John, James's brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, who? Simon the zealot. You mean we've got a tax collector and a zealot? 
and then Judas Iscariot who later betrayed him. And look what Jesus did. He said, here's my staff. I'm going to take a converted tax collector, and then I'm going to take a converted zealot, and I'm going to put them both in the same room, and let's see if this gospel really works. Because this, this kind of guy and this kind of guy, they never have gotten along. In fact, he's out to kill him. We're going to find out if this gospel really works. And so here's how it goes, church. Jesus can save a racist and take the, the background of that corrupt thinking and put that person right next to all the colors and ethnicities that they've hated. And I'm here to tell you that the gospel can change that heart into a heart of love. Jesus took the two most devastating enemies, and they're on his staff, working together with one goal, one mind, one heart, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. And that is the body of Christ. Whites next to blacks, blacks next to Hispanics, Hispanics next to Asians, old next to young, everyone together. And the beauty and the majesty of the body of Christ is that it has nothing to do with your ethnic background, but it has everything to do with one bloodline, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm in this church, and I'm committed to this church. Stand with me, please. Blessed be your name, Lord. Lord, we've given the truth of your word today as we celebrate on this Pentecost Sunday the birthing of the church. What an amazing plan you've had. Forgive us for minimizing its value. Forgive us for deciding we've got a better way. It's your plan that we are in this together, that we worship together, we connect with other believers. We have fellowship with each other. And that we serve in your kingdom in whatever way that you have given us to. So, Lord, for this day, I ask your grace to be upon Bethesda. Lord, I'm asking you to help us be all that you have called us to be, all that you have designed and purposed for us to be. But we need your help to do that. So on this Pentecost Sunday of 2017, we commit ourselves once again to understanding the value of the church and all that you are doing in and through your glorious church. You will have. You will bring us through all of this stuff. You will bring us through conflicts. You'll bring us through all kinds of situations. And you will have a glorious church without spot or wrinkle that is washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so for that today, Lord, we thank you. Lord, every person in this room ought to be thankful that we're in your church, that we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And not only that we're in your church, but that Christ is the head of the church. You are our leader, and we follow you today, even as we follow your example. You are the one who established the church. Lord, help us understand that and value it properly. For we say it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.